Yeah, what up? Hello, is Seabisk there? Um, this is he. Hello, we're calling. You've won a contest. Really? What's your middle name, your social security number, and your credit card information? <laughs> we're going to need the code on the bag as well. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. And here we are again. Mm-hmm. Hey, Father, are you, are you using the three fingers away from the microphone tactic? Um, I wasn't, but now I am. <laughs> no, sounds way better. Really? There no, it I is. I, I'm <laughs> keeping the three fingers there. Is that what you're supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. No, I was doing the same thing. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to be able to drink coffee today. <laughs> right, I'm taking this seriously now. Good. Let's get serious here for a second. Let's just be real this morning. Let's Whoa. cut through the BS. Oh, just man. Just be real. That's exactly what I'm looking to do. Just cut through the BS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you say that, what do you mean? Just all of it, dude. Just <laughs> no. cut through it, you know? Mike, we want to be real, just dude. Just get real, right? Let's Instead of clarifying, it. it became more general. <laughs> yeah. Just cut it. Like, out like butter mike cut it cut it mike so w- whatever you're about to say is bs just <laughs> save it man we're cutting through it this morning just go mike we got this all right i don't have anything i was just i was just making a statement it's time to get down to business yes it is cut through the bs I, that's just things that i say in the morning mm-hmm. to people you know, I rub myself up like that in front of the mirror. Just, <laughs> you know what, Bisque? It's time to cut through the BS. Everyone out there is trying to feed you a line of BS. Time to cut it. <laughs> Let's get down to business today, yeah. Mike. I, I, I usually do that. I'll, I'll probably talk about excellence for a good five minutes each morning mm-hmm. to myself, of mm-hmm. course. So mm. I'm pretty fired up about my morning routines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bisk, you got anything this morning? No. Well, I've just been, uh, I mean, I started, I told you a couple weeks ago, I think, or was it last week that I started reading The Grapes of Wrath? Yeah, you mentioned that. You guys ever read that book? No, no. Man, it is wrecking me. Do you know what it's about? Uh, The general premise, yes. Yeah, it's... You know, the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma in the 30s. This is Steinbeck, right? Yeah. So I've read some Steinbeck before. I've read East of Eden, which is he a also, super long book. But Did he write Of Mice and Men as he well? He did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Of yeah. Mice and Men I read and did not love it. Yeah, I was the same. Yeah, I, I kind of stuck with me, but yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't crazy about it either. I don't know if I got it, but... Anyway. Yeah, I don't know if I understood the point of it. You think he was BSing us? You think that was the problem? Yeah, dude. Dude. That's it, man. That you nailed it. it. Oh, man. We should have cut through it. <laughs> oh, like butter. Nice. Well, we're doing it now. Yeah, we just did it. 
Did we, <laughs> that was a load of BS, and we just buzzsawed <laughs> right through it. Yeah, you're welcome, Steinbeck. Just you're to clarify, just to uh, clarify for all the moms out there, when we say BS, we mean bologna sauce. Mm-hmm. Bologna sauce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cutting that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, bologna sauce? Is that a thing? Yeah. I thought that's what you meant by BS. Well, I was talking about... Um, it's too early to think. Quick on your it. feet. Quick on your feet. <laughs> Cut it, Mike. Cut it. I, Gosh, dang it, it. There it is. Oh, man. I was right. thinking of Bachelor's of Science. Like my degree. Mike, you're pushing it this morning, <laughs> dude. You are pushing it. Is there right, any way great. you could just turn your microphone off, dude? Honestly, <laughs> at this point. There's a switch. You know that. I could turn it off very easily. I'm going to cut right through that. All right. Is there something deeper going on there? <laughs> yeah. All right. Grapes of Wrath, continue. Well, I don't have that much to say about it. And that's kind of the point. Like, the, uh, <laughs> what I liked about Steinbeck when I read East of Eden was I mean, it's almost impossible to keep everything straight that he's talking about because East of Eden is like four or five different stories of different generations of different families and. It all kind of intersects eventually, but um, it's all this powerful emotion stuff, and it's not in any way shallow um, because it's kind of it's deep human things going on, uh, flawed people and, and everything like that. But the Scrapes of Wrath, man, it's just I've only read, I read on my Kindle, so you sound like a complete idiot when you're like, I've read 33% of it. Um, I have no idea how many pages, but about a third into the book and, uh, you know, it's these people getting pushed off their land in Oklahoma after it's kind of gone to dust and, uh, they were all tenant farmers anyway. And so the bank comes in and says, we can't, we can't have you out here subsistence farming. We need to make a profit. So they basically just take a tractor and plant cotton everywhere and, uh, it's a general kind of narrative about that generation of people and and what happened to them. Mm-hmm. But then it follows one specific family. Um, and I don't know, man. It's just, you know, when you guys talk about Brideshead doing this to you, it did that to me too. But when a story gets its hooks in you mm-hmm. and you just, anytime you have some time to sit down, you're like, might as well, might as well cut through another chunk of that. <laughs> and uh it's i don't know you guys I, I was it just got me thinking about art in general and how when you look at something or read something or watch something when it's really powerful you don't even know how but it's getting in you mm-hmm. and you're like you know just the ah, the powerful human stuff about they talks about how the people are the land and versus you know these people who are hired hands for the bank who owns the land and they come in with tractors and they, you know, they don't have to move around rocks with their hand plows cause they can just ride right over them. And you know, after you, there's one chapter where he's like, after a tractor gets turned off, it's just dead. Unlike a horse who you have to feed and it's still breathing and there's still life. But, um, these people, they don't belong to the land. They, work it and then they leave and they they feel no love for the land or hatred it's just a total indifference uh and that's kind of how they feel about themselves too 
I don't know. It just got me thinking about the whole modern. I mean, when you look at a when you look at a period piece like that, where it's like the birth of the automobile, um, and all this technology that really changed society and kind of put. I mean, you don't want to be too romantic and say like, "Oh, I wish we could all be subsistence farmers like they were back in the day," because modern conveniences has made life a lot better in a lot of ways, but. There's a certain nostalgia, I don't know if you feel, especially probably from Central Illinois, Rob, maybe this resonates with you, but a connection to the land, a connection to your labor and what you do and what you produce. Um, now you just look at it comparatively and um, human beings are so distant from the food they eat and the technology they use, they have no idea how it works. So we can't fix, like if this laptop stopped working, I would have no idea what to do except bring it to some store. But I don't know. Anyways, this is ramble complete, but that's what I've been thinking about. <laughs> and another thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if this is going to go anywhere either, but I mean, just thinking about there is something that resonated to me like just talking about the land but it's funny kind of what i was thinking about was when i grew up you know in central illinois you know farm town america was the nostalgia for me is right like knowing all these families that grew up on family farms like that's how they made their their living a lot of my buddies all they wanted to be were farmers like you know, work with their dad when they, when they grew up, but that was always through like the machinery. And it's, there's like a, in certain, in certain friends of mine, there's a deep love for these machines mm -hmm. uh, because they grew up fixing them with their dad, even my, my nephew, cause my brother-in-law is a farmer and my nephew, all he plays with is tractors like all he asked for for his birthday are tools and he's constantly like you you get to my sister and brother-in-law's house and he's got something he's working on and fixing because he's only three but that's what he's done with his dad this is a little juice box this is a little juice box yeah <laughs> and man, uh, he is the man um but the shift now to a greater commercialization is you know, that whole way of life, it, it at least feels like is kind of under under threat because, you know, there's just been so much growth with farms are getting bigger. So it's much harder to be a, a family farm anymore. So guys now, certain families are kind of starting to monopolize the, the different tracts of land. So instead where it used to be, you could have a family farm on 700 acres. Well, now that's not even a part time job honestly but these guys are able to because they're able to kind of shell out more money so their their margins are are tighter but they have more land in order to do it you know they have farms of you know 10,000 acres and they have all of these hired men and it is it's just a it's a straight business so it's interesting that, that was the only thing that really resonated with me was that shift from maybe like you know that initial move in the the time frame of grapes of wrath where that's i mean that's almost a haunting image though how he described you know the machine turns off but the horse you have to feed mm -hmm. um and then for me growing up it really is there's this nostalgia about like 
these these machines and these memories that are tied to family where even now that is under threat so there is a trajectory there relax yeah well like this is this is another place where your grapes of wrath book summary which i guess is what you're talking about this this is actually where it hit closer to home uh when you're talking about how art has the ability to move the human person and kind of these these ways that it touches us and we don't really know what's going on and especially around farming i mean i didn't grow up farming at all but we did grow up <laughs> we got an n64 when i was maybe 12 or something like that and <clears throat> the closest thing i ever got to farming was there's a game it was called harvest moon and i don't even know if I, it's fair for me to say that this is art <laughs> Ooh, can you hear our my radiators turning on? I did hear that a little bit. Yeah, that's all right. Okay. Well, so I don't. Yeah, I don't know if it's fair to say this, but in the game Harvest Moon, you are basically a farmer. Okay, and I had never played video games before, so this is like insane fun. And literally, you just farm in this game, and you like are in a small town, and you go and sell your crops at the market, and you can like go and try to win over the milk girl or something. So it's like total like, takes you back to like an older time and you have to have cattle and all this stuff and all the right tools for it. But <clears throat> the game was fine, whatever, and we would fight over who played because it was only a one-player game, which is no bueno for a family of 11 kids. <laughs> one-player games are not good. Um, but I got so stoked about farming that I literally went out and farmed, like just created a little farm in my backyard and went out and tilled up the land and cleared out all the weeds and went out and bought a bunch of seed for my from my, my parents. They came and helped me. And I honestly got one of those tillers and tilled up a, like a plot in my backyard and I farmed and grew cherry tomatoes and I can't even remember what else. And it was partially successful. I think I grew to grew a couple of things, but I and again I don't know if it's fair to say the art of the video game. But I was so stoked about the prospect of farming and like how much fun I was having that it it compelled me in reality hmm. to go out and actually be a farmer, which is the closest thing I've ever done to actually farming. Um, so I mean, you're you're talking here about the technology thing too, because. Yeah. How di more disconnected from reality could a virtual farm on a TV screen be? <laughs> you know, like the, that just shows you how disconnected we are from that world. But that there's still something in you that's like, yeah, but I want to do this for real. And then to yeah. go out and get your hands dirty in your own yard, um, I think is awesome. And it sh and it shows something human like that. The only reason that that game is appealing to anyone is because it's some shadowy image of the reality of actually being there and and putting the seed in the ground yourself and and watching the miracle of it growing up and producing food for you to eat. I mean, it's just um, that's the amazing thing about about cultivation and and harvesting and all that stuff. It's just uh, this this connection that you don't have a lot of control over it. You don't control when it rains and all this stuff. So there's a, there's an insecurity about the whole thing. But then there's therefore like a relationship that one has when they live on a, on the land that they uh, hope produces their sustenance. But um, what was I going to say? 
Oh, yeah. So it brings up to me the whole question. This is something I think about a lot is that the, how technology either disconnects us or connects us. And I read an article. I tweeted it. You don't ever check my Twitter account, do you? No. no. It was an article from a while back. I don't know what to say. <laughs> it was an Italian town. Like, a, I don't know. I got the impression from the article. It was kind of like, you know, your north north side kind of Wrigleyville, Bucktown type of uh, equivalent in a, Italy uh, where there's a lot of just like young single people who live there for a little while and then maybe they get married and move away or maybe it's a couple's first place and they get an apartment or or whatever. But kind of a popular city area where people don't really know their neighbors because there's a lot of turnover and because it's all kind of single family apartments or um, whatever. So this guy had this idea. He just moved into the into the city and he posted like on telephone poles throughout the neighborhood um, like the address of a Facebook group with a password and so the only people that knew about the group or the password were people in that neighborhood who actually lived there and you know it started small but then people started joining and um, it would be like a way for like a communication forum for people in the neighborhood who didn't necessarily know each other you know who lived mostly behind closed doors or if they saw each other they'd give a courteous smile but nobody knew each other's names and all this stuff so they started having social events through this Facebook group. And then now, like, um, you know, elderly people will post on there, like, I need help moving this thing. And, you know, people will just be like, I'll be there in a sec. You know, I'm I'm just coming back from the store. And they're in there, you know, from that same apartment building. And, um, and the way that people were describing it, it was like they just felt more human because they were connected to the people around them, you know. And the technology had helped them like cross the threshold of whatever fear or awkwardness there would be from just knocking on your neighbor's door who you never met. Um, and everybody said, you know, there's just a trust now, like, uh, and people, it brings out people's generosity and stuff, knowing that they have stuff that their neighbors need. And, and that's another thing that kind of, um, gets me about these books about the old days is like it was so much simpler then it was just it was like if i have something then it's the old like knock on the door and ask for some flour you know we're just not that connected anymore that people go do that um because you know we're running out and they have extra or, or whatever and we know that they're going to get us next time um we need something or, or whatever so anyways, like it just gets me thinking about the whole means to an end thing because so much of Facebook and the internet, particularly social media, is about getting you to use social media. Like Facebook stock rises and falls with how long people spend on Facebook and how many times they click through or click to ads. And here this guy in Italy was smart enough to use the technology to actually connect people, you know. And that's why I, got, I was so pumped about it because it's like, Yes, the technology is is morally indifferent, but um, if it exists primarily to just keep people staring at computers, I am against it. But if it can make communities into, you know, more tight knit human communities, then booyah! But um, we just have this uh, we just have this weird perilous relationship with the things we make, you know, whether it's a tractor or a website, you know. Um, it either alienates us or it or it makes us 
more connected, you know? Oh yeah, no, definitely. It, uh, I don't know, this may be a little bit of a, a stretch, but I, what I was thinking about when you guys were, um, were talking there and I did kind of have some interior chuckles like Mike talking about a video game farming and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> but at wow. least it got him farming for real. No, I know. I know. It, that was just like, that was total, like, I'm from a small farm town. And I'm going to be a jerk about this <laughs> mode, you know. Um, suburban white kid. Yeah, I don't yeah, even yeah. know what so, farming no, is. It, it wasn't. It wasn't that. But, um, <laughs> gosh. Um, but we would make fun of that. If I if I was oh, like yeah. with my buddies back home, we would make fun of that oh, yeah. so hard. Yeah. But anyway, did, did you bail, so. did you bail hay in the game? Did you, did yeah, you, yeah, yeah, Mike. Yeah, tell us about that. You uh, can skip through like forty. <laughs> did, did your fingers get all calloused from the controller? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What I was what I was thinking about though was a story that um, just the the technology and it that is a cool story honestly that you were talking about with the the community that has in whatever way used this thing that is yeah absolutely morally neutral um, to actually be a good because it's connecting human beings in a situation that yeah maybe without it honestly like that wouldn't be available and that's that's awesome um, but just kind of like yeah just as as humans, it's so easy to just lose ourselves, like lose our heart, lose our identity, like in these things that'll make it so easy to disconnect. And I was thinking last year in class, Father de Gaulle was telling us, and it was just a passing comment, but he was talking about Gorbachev, who was the old leader from the Soviet Union. And obviously, you know, at least in my opinion, he has some very uh, distorted views on what true freedom is. Um, <clears throat> from that ideology that he held and was a leader of for so, so long. But anyway, he had a, I, I don't know what, where Father de Gaulle found this um, interview, but he had a very interesting uh, take on like what was going on in the West. Um, and it was just, it was around all the, I think it was around maybe the, um, the stuff in like with, with Russia and Ukraine and, um, and just kind of like, you know, Obama and, and, um, president Putin and like all this, you know, stuff going on. And, and he said that Gorbachev was saying that before like the West in general, but particularly the United States always had like a fight that united them. And he was, and you know, if, and if you look back, it's kind of true in that, like, the world wars certainly, like, let us rally around that banner, um, especially the, you know, World War II. Those guys were honestly like the heroes of history, the heroes of the world at that point. And then they come back, and like, you have this economic boom in America, and they're having families and kind of this time of prosperity after the war. But even then, like, you kind of see, like, it united around civil rights. You see it united around whatever else, certainly. And then the Cold War that we had, the Soviet Union that we like were fighting against together. So no matter what, we were united in like whatever else we disagree on. There's a common enemy. We have a con common enemy. And Gorbachev's point was that like now, all of a sudden we really don't, or at least it's not clear like what it is. And um, 
I mean, he was pretty much saying like, just watch it decay from the inside was, was his point. Um, and again, I don't, I don't agree with him completely, but I thought it was a very interesting point that without the commonality, um, the common enemy to like feel united, you see us like turn in on ourselves. I think you see that in politics today and not to say like politics is way worse than it, than it has been before. I don't think it's ever been, been good. Um, but you see that all of a sudden where it, it feels more like, you know, an implosion as as opposed to like concrete things that we're moving forward on. Um, so it's just I don't know. Father de Gaulle kind of pitched it in the sense of um, like if we understand who we are as Christians, then like we don't need a kind of common enemy to be united in mm. in this life. And, yeah, and you know. So that's why Gorbachev's point is weak, you know, and right. so because he says that and it sounds like a very good pitch. And honestly, he can make it he can spin that for a very good pitch of like the freedom of communism or whatever, or the, you know, quote unquote freedom that it, it offers. And that was De Gaulle's point was like, yeah, honestly, the way we're living right now makes that sound pretty darn true. But as Christians, like we have to understand why that argument is still weak and it's still not right and like call ourselves to that higher plane which is being saved in community mm-hmm. like at our very heart like we resonate with that um and so there's a deeper like principle that i think we've been hitting on especially that part around like yeah something like social media can actually unite a community of people give them a little bit of in a positive of, way in a positive way other exactly. than yeah because it certainly unites people in tribes of common enemies you know right exactly uh, we hate these exactly. people we disagree with these people and if i mean yeah i think if what unites human communities is common enemies then we are seeing like micro uniting of different you know whether it's republican democrat liberal conservative um whatever the the People who see the common enemy within our own society are uniting a lot more and a lot tighter and circling the wagons and, and fighting. But what I hear you arguing for is the and what I think the human heart longs for and why that um, why some of the grapes of wrath resonates with me, why that article about the Italian town resonates with me is because what we really want is solidarity that's positive, you know, exactly. that recognizes the dignity of the human person and whether or not they are the same as me or from the same country or look the same as me that they're my brother or sister um but yeah i think that i mean obviously what gorbachev is saying lines up perfectly with marxism which is based in hegelianism that it's all revolution you know the only way the wheels of history move are when they're greased with the blood of let alone of the uh you know bourgeoisie and we have to have this common enemy to move forward to what is kind of the inevitable uh, terminus which is like the perfect society that has no law that everybody's just um, you know from each according to his ability to each according to his need and that's where we're all heading and uh, it's pretty clear that in the societies that have tried it that doesn't happen um, but yeah I think that um, what you're saying is is true that uh, I mean look at look at the history of the United States with religious freedom uh, like in England, for example, the government will pay, like we've all agreed in the West that education is a fundamental human right. And so people get to go to school for free, or at least the government will subsidize you 
sending your kid to school and they'll even make sure that you send them. But in England, um, if you want to go to a Jewish school or a Christian school or, um, you know, kind of an atheist materialist math and science academy, the government will give you the amount of money that it's budgeted for each kid to go to whatever school you want, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas in our country, the Catholic schools were built as a answer to the public schools, which were basically like the general American Protestant education. And so it was all on, the, you know, Catholic immigrants' own dime, you know, taught by nuns who worked for nothing. And uh, we had to have this whole parallel parallel education system that was not government-sanctioned. It was tax-free. But um, the point is that, like, there has to be, because we're a country of people from all these different backgrounds and all these different creeds, religions, um, cultures, there had to be some kind of common indoctrination because in order to have a society that functions well that is healthy that doesn't just crumble from within like you're saying you have to have a common narrative and common enemies and you know so that's what public schools were for um and why it wasn't okay for the government to just say yeah whatever education you want because in england everybody's english in germany everybody's german and but in america everybody's everything you know and so there was a there was a concerted effort from the beginning. I think if you look at the history of the education in this country to um, indoctrinate and not not necessarily in a negative way, but to to teach kids who they were. Um, and I see this with you know in my own community with Hispanic immigrants from Mexico, the kids that go to public school. I mean, they get um, turned into Americans very quickly. You know. Mm-hmm. And we're not very self-conscious about what that means. I think we're getting more conscious now as we export our culture to every other country and we see, like, is this really good, you know, Um, that our kind of ethos and culture from Hollywood or whatever else is just exported throughout the world and everybody's just going to turn into us. But, um, yeah, the... I don't know. That's why part of why Catholicism appealed to me so much was because I felt like it was an answer to that need of feeling like you belong to something bigger and longer than you. Like it's older than me. It's more uh, just a a grander vision for life and history than like what you get fed in the American narrative, which is the dream, you know, you can be whatever you want to be if you put your mind to it, which is total BS. And let's cut through it. Might as well, eh? Cut through it. Cut you know, I can't it. slam dunk a basketball no matter how much I try. We and can I, get some bleachers, though, in America. <laughs> you get a bleacher. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no but problem. that's. I mean, the point is that like you're not. You are who God made you to be, and you can you can have as much ontological envy as you want of LeBron James. You're never going to be him, no matter how much you put your mind to it. That's not true. Yeah. <laughs> Just say that. Stop. Stop. <laughs> okay, okay, guys. So you can't you can't handle these truth bombs or <laughs> yeah. you guys just want to talk Stop. about Pokemon or something? Was it, yeah. <laughs> was it, this is the thing that I thought of is you have like all of those um different political structures or even national structures, you know, a communism, socialism, that it seems like they're being compared to like the idea of democracy. So you have the the Marxist, socialist, communist infrastructure that holds people up inside of a nation, inside of a government, so that, you know, the the government, the political system tells them exactly who they are and exactly what they do, and there's an interior structure that holds the country in place. 
but with a democracy, which is basically like, I mean, that's, I think what I would say is the most Christian form of government because you recognize the autonomy of and uniqueness of the individual. So there's not necessarily uh, a built-in infrastructure because it's more difficult because a democracy is built on the reality that we believe individuals are going to create the necessary structure for the government. So we're going to build the government and build a nation around individuals. And we're going to allow them to do their own thing and to be their own people instead of having an infrastructure and placing people around that infrastructure however you want it. Mm. So one is way easier. It's way easier to have a set of laws and restrictions and uh, kind of a built-in premise and then place people how you want to place them. But it's way more difficult to say, hey, humans who are, are totally wild when you look at the history of humanity and we are out of control say hey humans we're gonna allow you to have freedom to operate how you'd like to operate and uh and then allow them to go out and do that so you have democracy which is there is much more freedom involved but it's much more difficult and kind of chaotic um and i would say that that's the more christian understanding i Uh, mean i i would agree definitely that it is at least i'm not I don't know that much about different structures and things like that, but certainly it is the the most Christian uh, like system that I know of and understanding of it. But I think I guess maybe the point we're driving at as well is like it's still not like necessarily divinely inspired. Right. Like the freedom that democracy offers is, I think, one of the greatest gifts like the world has seen. But we can also see how even in a democratic structure, like a dictatorship can still come in and it may not be like a person. It could be like a lack of freedom from whatever, like the opium of the masses maybe being the internet or TV or whatever. Brand name, anything. Exactly. And so you see how that can come into it, whereas the gospel is divinely inspired, can go into any culture, democratic, communist, whatever and it can meet people like right there and certainly inspire work to like improve the lives of whoever you know it is encountering but the point is like the encounter is right where you are at and the gospel works yeah Um, and so i think that's the freedom that like we need to call people to yeah yeah and kind of what i was driving at there is like if you see the gospel go into a place where they do have uh, more of a dictatorship or, yeah, the Marxist, fascist, communist, socialist, that whole utilitarian type structure. Whenever you see the gospel going, it almost every time blows that up. So it it disintegrates that. Whereas I think democracy allows for the freedom to be baptized and to live fully as Christians, because that's really that's really what Christianity is, is just seeing individuals Um, who are built around, who are living around the common identity as being sons and daughters of God. And I think when you see democracy baptized, then you have a nation of sons and daughters of God who are living around that common identity. And I I mean, it's tough because you you can't, you know, it's not, obviously we're not going to say like the entire nation of the United States is going to be baptized and live as Christians. And so it's it's difficult to um, find that common narrative. 
when you have people who are, like you said, Father, who are coming in from all of these different countries who, in a sense, you're asking, like, leave behind this deep history that you have. You're coming from another nation, you know, whether from Mexico or uh, El Salvador or wherever, and you have to, you're, you're Americanized in the public schools. Um, and so it's difficult to find, to find that common narrative, to find that common theme. Um, yeah. And I mean, certainly the common enemy thing did it because, you know, no matter who you were, no matter what country you came from or your family came from, you signed up in World War II because it was a just cause and it was the cause of democracy right. and freedom. And, and those things do unite us. Um, as a people, but Cardinal George always said it's you know it's a legal fiction. There's no such thing as American people. Um, there is such a thing if like the the Republic of Germany, if that's what it's called, you know, was no longer existed. There was some coup or revolution, and or the borders got redrawn. There'd still be German people, but if America's constitution and Washington D.C. somehow fell off into the sea, there'd be no American people. People would you know be but I, I think to your point i mean chesterton definitely sides with you mike that that democracy is the most christian um system because it's it uh lines up with our anthropology of the dignity of a human person and the freedom and autonomy of the individual um but not in like a self-actualization not in a like i define who i am in an existential sense but um you know i don't think that that's I think the way Christianity or religion in general gets painted is absolutely opposed to that, that, you know, somehow you're, you're getting, you know, fit into and ground up by this system that's telling you who you are and how to behave and how to live your life. And man, it's so much more, we're the free thinkers that we, you know, we say no to God and yes to human beings. And, um, but often what happens is like in those atheist systems, you do, you end up with slavery, uh, either to some kind of form of government or, some, you know, corporate manipulation through advertising and consumerism um, that you don't end up with a more, a society full of really free people. Um, everybody tends to just go into like whatever group think. Um, but I think that when we apply it to, we apply what you were saying, Mike, to the church, it's like not just having slots for people to, like in Russia, we need people to farm we need people to trap fur we need people to um, make widgets and we're just going to assign you a job from like your abilities and test scores and stuff where the tail's wagging the dog it's the job not the human being that's primary um but you you can see that in in the church sometimes where we're like well we need a dre we need a youth minister we need this and you just go interview people and try to fit them into those jobs rather than the view of the New Testament, which is charisms, like God gives each person some unique gift or desire to serve that brings them alive, you know. And so the church's job is to, you know, discern and identify those gifts and then put them in service of the gospel and the kingdom. And that way human beings come first, you know. That's the truly democratic thing that, you know, all of us are better... Um, together than each individually you know doing their own thing but when we bring ourselves together our individual individuality comes out in a more pronounced way and which is why we've talked about this with the saints like the saints are actually interesting and varied and different and unique whereas sinners i mean there's only so many categories of sin 
um, and every you know it all it all ends up kind of looking this dirty brown because it, you know all the colors get mixed together rather than um, like a Christian democratic worldview where everybody is like the light the light comes through the prism and gets separated to the point where you see the the beauty of the rainbow. Um, but we, I mean, you just have to, you have to be careful about that because it's so easy to fall into sort of a systematization. And I think the great line from IPF, one of the priests said is he'll look at like a bulletin of a church, of a parish and see all these different uh, plans and, and programs and, and stuff. And he thinks of the prayer, like God bless the plans we've made for you, you know, rather than, <laughs> rather than kind of trying to keep your eye on God and ask, you know, ask what his plans are and bless those, you know? Yeah, dude, that's but, a subtle shift, but that's, it's yeah, really important. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, in, in my own life, it's way easier to kind of have the structure set in and have all these plans that you make. And then like, you know, yeah, you have to kind of let the Lord fit around those plans, but it's way more difficult to have this kind of out of control freedom sense and not freedom of ourselves, but like freedom for the Lord to work. And it's, it's way more difficult um, because you have to trust that God's a real person and that he's actually going to take care of you and that he's actually going to get you through um and not just get you through, but make you completely who you are. Uh, and and so it's really, it's much scarier. It's much scarier. But uh, in the end, obviously, that's what, I mean, it, it's much freer. And yeah. it's much, much truly, much more truly human. Um, yeah. Yepers. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And here, down.